0: Our sermon today comes from 1 Samuel chapter 30, but before we read God's Word, I want to give you some context. I think it's necessary to give you some context. I don't know if you recall, um, but last summer, you guys did a mini-series on David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, one of the best series I've ever heard. If you haven't heard it yet, go back on cornerstone.com slash PC, Lansdale, I don't know what it is, but just go on the website and <laughs> listen to it. It's really good, or you could go on the podcast. Um, Between chapter 17 and chapter 30, a lot takes place, okay? Do you guys know what takes place after David kills Goliath? David, the future king, the hero of Israel, is actually on the run. He's running away. Why? From whom? From Saul. Saul, the current king of Israel, is murderously envious of David's popularity, his success, his fame. And so David, for roughly 10 years is on the run. They played this hide and seek game uh, for 10 years. And do you know where David eventually finds refuge? In Gath, okay? Now, why is that name significant? You know who's from Gath? Goliath. Goliath of Gath. David decided the best place that he could hide from Saul is in Philistine territory. I want you to let that sink in. Do you think that David as he was standing in the valley facing off against Goliath, do you think he ever thought, boy, the real estate in Gath is hot. I'm gonna invest there. I'm gonna purchase a home there. No, that never crosses his mind, not in a million years. If you recall, David was filled with disdain. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He was adamantly opposed to the Philistines. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. Not only does David reside in Gath, he becomes the servant of the king of Gath. Worse, David becomes his right-hand man. And so for 16 months, he's living in this town called Ziklag. He's become buddies with the enemies. Fast forwarding a little more, the Israelites, David's hometown, and the Philistines, where he's currently residing, they're about to go to war. As you can imagine, David finds himself in a lose-lose situation How could the future king of Israel fight against his own people? Well, long story short, as David and his men are making their way to the battleground, the other Philistine commanders take a look at David and say, wait a minute. This is the certified Philistine killer. We don't trust him. We can't ask him to fight with us. We don't trust him. There's no way. And so the other commanders say, no, he's out. And they send him back home to Ziklag. That's the context of our story. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. And if I could ask you to now stand as we read and receive God's holy word. This is his word to you this morning. When, now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the woman and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahimeh of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself, the Lord his God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Will you join me in prayer? Father, Thank you for your invite to come to your house this morning, to your presence, to sit, to the preaching, hearing of your word. Remind us that this is your word, that we are not just coming to hear some guy give a lecture, but right now is your life-giving word. And so we ask for your spirit to do just that, to fill us, to feed our souls, but most importantly, to help us see the beauty Majesty of Jesus Christ, that as we receive and eat your word, Lord, that Christ will be exalted, Christ will be magnified. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Here's the gospel truth for today's message You can be assured that God will draw near in your suffering. You can be assured that God will draw near in your suffering. And we're going to explore these gospel tr- this gospel truth under these two points why God, and then my God. Why God? My God. Let's look at why God. David and his men, not being trusted by the Philistine commanders, are sent home. It looks like David is about to catch a break. As you can imagine, there's much to look forward to. As they're walking home, they're thinking about the food, rest, comforts of their own home, family. Except that when they go home, there is no home. Everyone that they love and everything that they own are all gone. What used to be their town, Ziklag, is now in ashes. Can you imagine anything worse? To lose your home, your spouse, your children, your possessions, all at once. One commentator writes, this is a tragedy rivaling that of Job's, but multiplied 600 times over. Now, David has endured trials before. The past 10 years have been trial after trial. This one is by far the worst. But do you know what makes this the worst? Do you know why this uh, this one makes it more difficult? What's different about this one than the other trials? In every other situation, he's had someone to console him, to encourage him, always. If you go back to the account of David, we can list all his consolers, all his encouragers, the prophet Samuel his best friend, Jonathan, his mighty men, his wives. But now David is alone. All of his men have turned against him. They are ready to kill him, stone him. Someone's got to be accountable. He's the leader. He's got to go. They want him dead. And so here's David with nobody to turn to, nowhere to go. Everything and everyone has been taken. And yet this is not the worst thing that could have happened to David. What? What do you mean this is not the worst thing? He's lost everything. How could you say that this is not the worst thing? It's not. And dare I say, it's actually the best thing that could have happened to David. But before we see why the suffering is the best thing for David, let's start with the alternative. I want you to put yourself in David's shoes. You and your men return to Ziklag, not in smoke and ashes, but to clear blue skies to fresh air, the sound of your children laughing, to the smell of a home-cooked meal, to the sight of a healthy 401k, all the possessions you've acquired in those 16 months. This is the breather you've been looking for. Saul has stopped chasing you. Your other enemy, the Philistines, are off to war. For the first time, you feel at home. Life is good. This is what an early retirement looks like, or at least you think. It's good. Do you know when David last sought the Lord? He hasn't sought the Lord since crossing over to Gath, to the land of the Philistines. And in those 16 months, there was no mention of God, not once. We can probably say that David no longer identified himself as a refugee, but now as a resident of Ziklag. and, And the sad reality is that David was actually better off as a refugee. Now, I know that sounds off. That sounds weird. That word has a negative connotation to it. But being a refugee, at least for David, wasn't such a bad thing. Why? When you're a refugee, you're at the mercies of another. When you're a refugee, you're dependent on someone else. For David, he had to depend on God. He had no other choice. He had to lean on God. He He needed God. But whatever happened since he moved to Ziklag? What happened as a transition from refugee to resident? He no longer needed outside help. He no longer depended on God. He decided what was right for him. He decided what was best for him. He moved away from Christ-likeness and started to slowly form to the image of the Philistine. God, I needed you back then when I had nothing, when I was on the run, but I'm okay now. I I settled down. I found my footing. I got this. Isn't David's life really a mirror into our own lives? When things are going well in our lives, don't we have a tendency to wander away, to grow self-satisfied and independent? We gradually get lulled into thinking that we're okay that we're in control, that we're secure, that we've got it all figured out. But there's nothing like a crushing trial that quickly reminds us of who we are. There's nothing like suffering to sober us up, to help us see ourselves for who we really are. We are needy creatures. We're not in control. We're not all that secure. Suffering leaves us vulnerable and exposed. You don't have it figured out. You know what suffering is like? You ever play with building blocks with your, with your kids? I have these things called magnetiles at home. They're like these magnets, triangles and squares, and you connect them to these magnets. And, you know, whenever I play with my kids with these magnet tiles, I'll sit next to them and make a pyramid or a cube, something small. But you know what ends up happening? Five minutes later, my kids are tired of the magnetiles and they'll move on to the next toy but I haven't moved in 30 minutes because now I've constructed a tower the size of my kids. Not only have I constructed this tower, I've made a magnetile fence around the tower, why? Because we all know what happens next. The kids take one look at the tower and it means one thing, demolition. (laughs) But before they get to your tower, say stop, don't move. Don't even think about it. I'm stiff arming my kids. I'm throwing pillows at them to protect this precious magnetile tower. But you're only delaying the inevitable. Your construction will lead to destruction. Your towering piece will end up in 200 pieces. All that time, all that energy, all that focus, all for nothing. See, so often, suffering feels that way. And it feels that way because we live as if Ziklag is our forever home. We live as though the here and now, this is it for us. We live as though Ziklag is where we're supposed to find identity and meaning. And so we do everything in our power to protect our Ziklag, to protect our magnetile tower, to protect what we spend so much time and energy securing. But suffering comes and it knocks you down. Suffering comes, and it feels like your life is crumbling into a million pieces. Suffering reminds you of how fragile life is, and at times, it will feel devastating. Oftentimes, it will feel crippling and debilitating. Suffering will take you to those places. You know, I'm sure David felt all those things, but do you know why this was not the worst thing that could have happened to David? Let me put it in this light. What if God wasn't in the picture? What if God wasn't sovereign over it? What if this was an accident? Happened by mere chance. It was totally random. How do you explain suffering then? You can't. You have no answer. It leaves you hopeless. There is no redemption. Life is meaningless. But I want us to see that this isn't random. Not only is it not random, there is much grace in your suffering. There is kindness in your suffering because you see suffering comes in and it disrupts what we perceive as normal, what we perceive as okay, or even good because suffering wakes us up to reality. What was that reality for David? Was David supposed to be a resident in Ziklag? Who is David? Is he not the king, the anointed king? Is David supposed to be on the run? No, he should be on the throne, ruling and reigning. And he certainly should not be settling for Ziklag, but he should be sitting in Zion, the city of David. A kingdom awaits him. And friends, what's true of David is actually true of you too. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, we settle for too little. We often want nothing more than the immediate alleviation of suffering, but God wants to give you more. So much more. He wants to give you things that will last all eternity. He wants to give you the kingdom. And what that means for David, for you, me, for everyone who places their trust in God, our sufferings are never without meaning. No, there is tremendous grace in your suffering. And I'm not talking about a future grace because we know how the story ends. I'm not talking about the blessing of God restoring everything to David and, his, and all that his men lost. No, right now in David's nothingness, there's actually much grace. You see, the beauty of this text is that for David and for every believer, yes, there is suffering in your life and yet suffering won't leave you there. Or if I could rephrase that, suffering will feel like your life is breaking down, but God will never leave you broken. Suffering will feel debilitating, but God will never leave you debilitated. You will face loss and at times almost unbearable loss, but you can be certain that one thing will never be taken from you. You see, though David could no longer say my possessions, he can no longer say my home. He cannot say my friends. He has no one. He cannot say my family. He's lost everyone. He could still say my God. In fact, it's the only thing he could say. It's the only place, the only person to whom David can turn to in this moment of devastation. And so you see, more than taking the crown, more than being in the right city, David needed to be with his creator. David needed to be with his covenantal keeping God, which is precisely what this suffering did for David, which leads us to our second point, my God. This is what we read in verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God." This right here, verse six, is a turning point for David. What does it mean that David strengthened himself in the Lord? Well, let me ask you, when you're in the middle of a crisis, when the unthinkable happens after the the initial, I can't believe that happened, or I can't believe this is happening, after the initial shock wears off, what is it that you want to know? Isn't it why has this happened? Why is this happening? We look for some type of explanation. We look for a reason. We want to understand our suffering. But I want you to see what it was that strengthened David. What David needed most wasn't to understand, but to stand under. See what I did there? Okay, he wasn't to understand but to stand under. What David needed most wasn't to understand suffering, but it was to stand under God. What David needed most wasn't his suffering defined, no, he needed a relationship defined. Notice, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The text doesn't say David strengthened himself in the God of Abraham, the God of Israel, nor does it say that David strengthened himself in the omnipotent God or the omniscient God. No, it says his God. David strengthened himself in a covenantal God, a personal God. And so when David went before the Lord, his strengthening didn't come from hearing, David, this is why you messed up. This is why you are wrong. Let me show you how you can fix the situation. Now get up and try again. No. His strengthening came from hearing, David, you're mine. You belong to me. Now get up. I am with you. I am for you. I will give you aid. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will cause you to stand. I will uphold you by my all good, all powerful hand. I am your God, David. Cornerstone, let me ask you, in suffering, where do you seek your strength? What are you asking for in your prayers? Is it merely his knowledge? God, why? Or is it his nearness? I need you. Do you see God himself in your sufferings? Or do you just seek answers to your questions and relief from your misery? You know, as I was studying this passage, I came across the story of Joni Erickson Tata. Um, For those of you who don't know her, Joni Erikson Tata in 1967 at the age of 17 suffered a terrible diving accident that left her paralyzed from the shoulders down. As you can imagine, she was devastated. And in her testimony, she shares that she was angry with God. She battled with being indifferent towards God with depression, with suicidal thoughts, But then one night as her friend was ministering to her on the hospital bed, something clicked. And let me read you an excerpt from her testimony. She says, if God at that point had answered all my why questions, it would not have mattered. It would have been like pouring million gallon truths into my one ounce pea brain. Something in my heart rose to the occasion. After that, my prayers became a lot more passionate Part the heavens, Lord. Come down. If you have comfort, I need it. I'm lost. I want you to find me. Leave the other 99 in the field and come rescue me. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. I felt as though God had suddenly become the daddy who reaches down and picks up his child and pats her on the back and says, there, there, honey. Everything's okay. Daddy's here. It's okay. Okay. And then she shares this illustration, which I think perfectly captures the point I'm trying to make. She writes, when a child falls from his bike, skins his knee, and is holding his bleeding leg, looks up into the face of his daddy and cries, why? Few daddies would fold their arms, look down at the child and say, well, son, the next time you're on your bicycle and you're going around the sharp corner at a high speed, please watch the trajectory of your curve and make sure you check the coarseness of the gravel. That would be a good dry technical answer to the question, why? But a child isn't looking for that answer. He wants his daddy to reach down, pick him up, pat him on the back, and say, everything's going to be okay. You know, it's helpful to recite, to say to yourself, God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. That regardless of my circumstances, I know He's in full control. I know He's strong and powerful. It's helpful counsel yourself with the truth that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. That he did not flinch when he made this decision. That according to his own wise counsel, he has decreed everything that has come into your life. These are all good and helpful truths. But let us not also forget he is personal. That he is near. That he is compassionate beyond our describing and understanding. He is gracious and merciful. Friends, I want to remind you this morning that we not only live under the eyes of a sovereign God, but we live under the eyes of a compassionate God. The God who holds the world in his hands also holds you. You see, David, who had lost everything, didn't let suffering define him. He let his relationship to God define his suffering. But do you know what I find remarkable about that? You know, earlier I alluded to the quote that this is a tragedy rivaling that of Job's but multiplied 600 times over. But you know what the difference between David and Job is? Job was living a righteous life and then he suffered. And sure, he he had to repent of his self-righteousness, but before God permitted trials in Job's life, he was faithful. He was obedient. We cannot say the same for David. David got himself into this mess. David was living a life of disobedience. He positioned himself in Ziklag. And the reality is all of us have gone wayward. All of us seek our own ways. All of us seek our Ziklag's. And yet God hasn't changed his mind about David. God hasn't changed his mind about you. Because if that had changed, If God had changed his mind about David, if God had given up on David, if God said, you know what, David? Fine, go your way. Do what you want. Stay in Ziklag. That really would have been the worst thing for David. That would have been worse than any cancer, than any crippling disability, worse than the loss of his family. Because you see separation from God, from your maker, from your sustainer is the worst thing that could happen to anyone. The biggest threat is not life with suffering. No, it's life without God. But God, being a covenantal God, refused to let David go. And so though David's posture before God slowly started to change, his position before God hasn't changed. God was always for him. God was always with him. God never forsook him. This suffering wasn't retribution. It was actually restoration. I want you back, David. Come back to me. And friends, we can have the assurance that the sufferings that we face in this life are never retributive, but restorative. How can we be sure? How can we be sure that the sufferings, the trials in my life are ultimately for my good? How can we be sure of that? Here's how. There will be another David, a greater David who through no fault of his own will also find himself alone and isolated. And in his darkest hour, in his most distressing time, he does what David did here. He went before the father to strengthen himself. But whereas God tells David, get up, son, you have a crown waiting for you. To Jesus, he says, get up, son. You have a cross waiting for you. To David, he says, get up. You will not be forgotten To Jesus, he says, get up, you will be forsaken. In David's hour of need, he was assured by the father, turning his face towards the father. In Jesus' hour of need, he was abandoned by the father. The father turned his face away. You see, the ultimate suffering that we deserve, the suffering that was supposed to crush us, fell upon his perfect son, Jesus The true David, Jesus Christ, comes for you in the flesh and suffered the ultimate suffering on your behalf. Why? It's the only way for you to forever belong to God. This is how we're assured that God draws near in our suffering. You belong to him. Praise be to Christ. If I could just close with one final thought. I know we didn't get past verse 6, but if you continue reading, David is not only strengthened in the Lord his God, he's given an instruction, really a promise. Go and pursue those who attack you, and you will rescue everything. That's precisely what happens. If you read verses 18 to 19, this is what we read. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives, Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoils or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. Everything was restored. And friends, that is the reality of all who are in Christ. If I could quote the late David Pallison, he says this, your life story may contain a great deal of misery and heartache along the way, but in the end, in Christ." Your life story will prove to be a comedy in the good old sense of the word, a story with a happy ending. You play a part in the divine comedy, as Dante called it, with the happiest ending of any story ever written. Death, mourning, tears, and pain will be no more. Life, joy, and love get last say. We don't have to wait until the end to live a life of joy and happiness and to feel loved. No, we could do that now. Because right now, you have something, someone that can never be taken away. You have God himself. Let's draw near to him. Let's pray.